All right. Morning, guys. How's it going? Nice to have a seat when you're ready. Well, thanks for being here on this three-day weekend. I really appreciate it. Um, my name is Josh. I'm the pastor here, and uh, we are in the middle of an, a really fun series. I was going to say awesome series. That's kind of toot my own horn, but a really fun series uh, called Creation, and we're studying Genesis. And this is a little misleading because Genesis is a big book, so it spans all the way from the creation, all the way to uh, the story of Joseph, and, and right before Exodus, where the entire nation of Israel uh, is enslaved. But it tells the story of this nation, Israel, from its very beginning, from the very beginning of the earth, all the way uh, to where we really get. And when scholars look at the Bible, they kind of look at this, bu- this book uh, as more of a, like a prologue. Like, it's not actually where the story of Israel begins, but it tells the story of where Israel comes from. This is sort of the origin story, if you will. And really, it's all of our origin stories. So for the past, that's right, dude. For the past two weeks, uh, we've, we've talked about uh, just the first three chapters of Genesis, and that's where we're going to stick uh, for the remainder of this series. It was supposed to only go this week and next week, uh, but I added one in this week because uh, I felt moved by it, uh, just the weekend that it is. Uh, I wanted to stay on topic, and also I joined a spiritual formation class that took up all of my time, so I'm pretty much stealing everything from that for this this week. Uh, but... Uh, Genesis is a, is a story of generosity, and basically what that means is out of nothingness, God creates abundance and speaks it into the world. And so from the very beginning, what we have to understand is our story begins in creativity. It doesn't begin uh, with mathematics. It doesn't begin with, here's the plan, we're going to write it all out, and then we'll execute. It begins with God literally speaking, spoken word, the world into existence. Creation is creative, and so our response to creation needs to be a little bit more creative. Here's what I mean by that. Most of the time in sermons on this stuff, we skip by, we'll go like the seven days and we'll say that God said it was good, but then we generally skip chapters one and two, and we go right to chapter three, where there's this funky thing called the fall. You open up the Bible, you turn to chapter three, it's going to say the fall, and we get stuck there for an awfully long time, and I would argue 90% 90% of the sermons being spoken in the U.S. right now, right at this very minute, are going to somehow get back to that Genesis 3. Uh, and why we focus so much on that, there, there is an importance, and so I think we do have to speak of sin. We have to talk about how we got in this mess and how we got here. But I want to make this abundantly clear. The real story does not begin with that fall, and the story does not end with that fall. It doesn't end. In fact, it ends with redemption, it ends with beauty, it ends with grace, it ends with flourishing, it ends with all of this awesome stuff. So when we get to the end of the book, that's really what we should be talking about. But for some reason, we got to the end of the book and we're like, you know, I really liked that Genesis 3 part, and we got stuck there for a little too long. But I believe the Genesis story, especially those first three chapters, are actually supposed to be read super creatively and super beautifully. Because uh, what we have is a creator God who speaks us into existence and loves us from the very beginning. Some really unhealthy theology is that in Genesis 3, when someone ate the fruit, God stopped loving us for a little bit. That is not the case. God keeps on chasing us, keeps on loving us all the way through that bulk of Scripture. And the whole of the Bible from then on out are all stories of God pushing people into a more loving and beautiful reality. All the while, he's showing them how much he actually cares for you. And this is a radical idea. 
Because if you read the myths and legends and deities and gods and all the kind of stuff that was going on in Egypt and Mesopotamia at the same time that Jesus was there, the gods that they are worshiping are generally pretty angry. (laughs) They're the type that if you do the wrong thing, there's going to be a flood or your sister's going to die. It gets really, really dark. But this God, this Genesis God, this Hebrew God, for some reason is obsessed with humanity. He creates, he declares it good, and then he keeps running towards it. That's really rare. We don't see that in a lot of other traditions. And this is a tradition that we follow, this faith, this God that we follow is one that loves us enough to chase us throughout all of humanity from generation to generation to generation. So we need to stop focusing so much on Genesis 3 because that's really not our story. Our story is not that we stayed in the garden. Right? And that's really what Genesis 3 is about. Most people are like, I just if they hadn't eaten the fruit, then goodness, we would still be in the garden and everything would be awesome. I'm here to tell you that that sounds rather boring to me. So what, what we have to do is actually pull apart the poetic beauty of this story and actually look at some of the symbols and symbols that coincided with other myths and other traditions at the same time to see that this unfolds and that we were always, the story that we have is that we left the garden is that we did that. We ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we left, and therefore, that's the story that we reckon with. We can't lament about having done that. We can't just say if we hadn't done that and said it hadn't entered the world. It did. So we find ourselves in the the threshold, in this uncomfortable in-between position where we have the garden and we have where we are now. We can focus on it because it's a really good story on that in-between right there. And I think what that takes is a really careful reading of that and also a really careful way of paying attention. You see, the way of Jesus, if Dallas Willard, who's a brilliant theologian, um, calls Jesus the most relaxed God in the entire universe. <laughs> is if you look at the stories of Jesus, whenever someone comes up to Jesus in a panic, there's all these stories of people like, I, my, my son is going to die, surely you've got to get there, come on, let's go. You always just see Jesus kind of react like, okay, I will go to there. Like, he's not, he's not rushed. Right? There's a Zen uh, uh, Buddhist theologian, and I cannot remember, his name is very, very Japanese, and I, I can't pronounce it or remember it right now. Um, but basically, he, he kind of posited that uh, the average speed of a human being, uh, if we're walking, so average meaning like someone could be a lot faster than that, someone could be a lot slower than that, but the average, if you look at the median for everybody in the entire world, he figured it was probably about three miles an hour. Three miles an hour. Now, that may seem infuriating to some of you that like to walk really, really quickly, but in all like honesty, that's the average speed that people walk, three miles an hour. So those of us who are really rushed and those of us who are very, very slow, right in the middle there is about three miles an hour. And he said he was teaching on this once, and someone raised their hand, and they said, well, I don't walk three miles an hour. I walk five miles an hour. So he said, well, picture this. If Jesus is supposed to be this relaxed, sort of like chill-out guy, how fast is he walking? I would say he's probably walking around three miles an hour. So if you're walking faster than that, who are you following? Who are you following? See, love actually has a speed, and that speed is a lot slower and a lot more intentional than us Americans are really comfortable with. We want to get to point A to point B very, very quickly, but actually it's the whole journey in between, and it's the whole life of faith and your entire life is going to be about that journey. It's not about just the beginning and the end. It's going to be about the in-between and how closely you paid attention to all of the things that happened in your life, all the things you said yes to, 
all the miracles you encounter and you chose to see them and stay in that moment. And you're also going to be defined by the things that you passed by, the things that you said no to, and things that you did not pay attention to. Some of you have heard this story, but uh, it's, it's just, it locks right in here. Um, uh, Chelsea and I had been dating for about two years, somewhere in there, um, and it was getting to the point in the relationship where almost every conversation would kind of wind its way towards mostly her doing, when are we going to get married, right? So uh, it would get to that point, we, we, we were talking about it, we were uh, thinking about it, we were praying about it, um, and, uh, and my roommate had given me this watch, and it was a, it was a wooden watch, he had a company called uh, Woodward, and they made these wooden watches. They've since gone way, way under. But anyway, I have one, um, and, and he gave it to me for free, and he's like, it's too big, so you're going to have to get the lengths taken out of it. And this is the first like piece of jewelry I'd ever owned. So I was like, cool, where do I go for that? He's like, I don't know. It's probably like a jewelry place uh, in the mall. And I went, okay. So I went over to the mall, and I, I dropped off uh, my watch, and they said, this is probably going to take like, uh, like 30 minutes or so. Uh, is there anything you want to see while you're here? Um, and Chelsea and I had gone ring shopping like once, and I was kind of dragged to it begrudgingly and like kind of looked at it and then looked at the price tag, and I was also like, oh my God. Um, but this is like a Mother's Day sale, and so I was like, yeah, I mean, wait, yeah, let's take a look. Like, let's see what you got. And I was like, how much does, you know, your kind of standard wedding ring thing come out? Um, she's like, oh, well, I don't know. Let's, let's start over here. And she pulls out this ring uh, that was the exact ring uh, that Chelsea had pinpointed and said yes, and it was the exact same ring my mother has. Um, and it was a Mother's Day sale. All this stuff is aligning in my head. And before I knew it, I just blurted out, I'm going to buy it. <laughs> just, just like that. I kid you not, that was verbatim what came out of I'm going to buy it. Uh, and she looked at me like, are you okay? You need to take a breath? And I was like, nope, I think I'm going to buy it. She's like, can you afford it? And I was like, let me check. <laughs> came back, and I was like, I think I could swing it. I'm going to buy it. Uh, and I bought it. And so I, I bought the ring, and then I walked out, and I was like, what the heck have I just done? I left my watch at the jewelry place. I uh, had to come back for it the next day, but left just sort of standing there and then realizing I'm holding, like, the most expensive possession I've ever bought in my life, and I'm holding it like this, like, just walking through the mall. Like, so I'm like, oh, put that in your pocket. Put it in my pocket. And I'm like, I gotta, I gotta like, get my head straight. So I go and I get a coffee uh, at the coffee bean kiosk at the mall. And I go and I, I get my coffee and I order my coffee and I pay for my coffee. And then uh, they said, thank you. And I said, thank you. And I walked away and I left my coffee. So I, le I left my coffee because my brain is not there. And then I get out to my car uh, and it's raining. I turn my lights on and I'm like, oh shoot. I didn't get my coffee, so I drive to a Starbucks, I pull in, uh, I leave my lights on, I call my dad, I'm freaking out, I'm going, I don't know what I'm doing, so we talk for a little bit, we talk for a long bit, we talk for about an hour and a half, I finally get my coffee, I walk back outside, my lights are now off. I go to my car, I turn it, no dice. <laughs> Battery is dead. So I sit there and I have to call, and I go through the list of people I can call that can maybe jump me. I don't have AAA at this point. I'm a starving youth pastor. Guys, give me a break. So I, uh, I call the only person I know that could get there in time, and that was Chelsea. And at first, that sounded fine, but on the phone, I was like, hey, my car's out. Can I come and get it? And like, click. Uh, and she had to text me back. I just, I didn't, I knew if I talked too long, something would come out. Uh, so she arrives at the place, and she, she jumps in the car with me, uh, and she keeps trying to just, like, she, it's raining. So she's like, can I just come sit in the car? I'm like, don't sit in the car. I put it, like, in the glove compartment. I'm like, no, you can't go in there. And so she's, like, getting soaked, and I feel bad, but I'm like, I don't feel that bad. So we keep on going. Needless to say, uh, I planned on holding onto that ring for a year. That was my initial plan. I like talked to my dad through it, uh, and he's like, you know, it's okay. Like, just, just you go at your own pace and you figure it out. Um, and, and, and over the course of that conversation, I, I figured out that they were going to be in town two weeks from then. So two weeks later, uh, I proposed and popped the question. Um, so the whole point of that story is, in a moment, 
I, I had one of two choices. Uh, a, a miracle had honestly presented itself to me, this shining light, this, this holy moment. In a sense, this like kind of doorway where I could either walk through that door or I could ignore that door and walk away. And yeah, things would have happened like anyway, uh, but just in a general sense, our life is shaped by those threshold moments, those miracle moments, those holy moments where we choose to say yes to the holy and walk through the door, or to say no to the holy and miss the mark. You guys know that um, the actual Hebrew translation for the word sin, this thing we get really, really caught up on, actually means closer to missing the mark. It can be intentional, obviously, and it can be something that really could screw up your entire life, but really at the, at the core, at its essence, sin is a moment where we see what could be done and we decide to turn the other direction and we miss the mark. We miss what God has for us because we think we can choose a better direction. There's a better door. I know this feels right. I know everything's lining up. And for me, whenever I see things stacked on top of each other like that, where it's like it's the exact ring, it's Mother's Day, it was my mom's ring, it's at the, I, I, all of that kind of stuff is kind of like God just shouting at you. <laughs> and in a sense, you can just block that out. You could say, no, 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 I'm, I'm fine, I'm good. Uh, but I think a big part of this walk with Jesus, and if you see Jesus interacting with his disciples, the entire like, training period for them is really what he's, he's not giving them like standard lessons. There's no chalkboard. There's no note-taking. What he's trying to get them to understand as they walk with him is here's how you pay attention. Here's how you react to the world around you. And here's how you move in love. And here's what salvation ultimately looks like. And we see that all the time. Jesus is on his way. The entire gospel story is a road trip uh, from Nazareth to Jerusalem. Like we're, we're on the path. We're on a road. And he's got a destination. From the very beginning, we know he's headed to Jerusalem because that's like the main stage. That's like if you're on a tour, that's like the big concert at the end of it. This is like the main event. And so we know that's where he's headed. But all along the journey, they honestly could have done that journey in just a few days. Instead, we get three years worth of stories. A journey that could have taken just a few days takes three years to accomplish. And the reason for that is because when they're along the path, they keep getting interrupted. They keep getting sidetracked. People keep coming into Jesus' life, and he keeps following them, and he creates not a straight line, but sort of this curvy, sort of like bendy line that eventually gets to Jerusalem. And there's a real lesson in that. A straight line, a straight path, a straight life is really a life of no substance. If you are just constantly trying to be on the straight and narrow, constantly trying to achieve your goals and ignoring other people and leaving other people out because you're trying to get to this specific place, because me, 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 I need to be there, and you're ignoring the things that are around you, your life is going to be pretty unspectacular. You might get to a point where you wake up and you go, what if I'm here? Maybe some of you have had that. That's a threshold moment. That's a doorway moment. I'm here, but is it really what I want? Is it really what I need? Is this the place I was supposed to be, or is this the place that I just drove myself to? And now, where am I supposed to go next? What am I supposed to do? Some of us truly get there too fast. This is true in like career stuff when we're super young and we make it to a really successful, awesome position, but then we just kind of look around and take note and go like, okay, so this is what I was working for my entire life, now what? 
for me, guys, I gotta be honest with you, if you're climbing up the corporate ladder in terms of like religious positions, I'm a lead pastor. I was a lead pastor at 28 years old. You could sit there and I could go like, I mean, we're really packing the house here, but if you're sitting and you're going, like, like where is there from here? If that was my goal the entire time, I would be profoundly uninteresting at this point. We need to set goals that are not just physical stuff and driven, but heart driven. And we need to be so open and aware of the things around us that could shape us and the doorways that we could walk through, the thresholds that we could walk through, that could actually move our lives deeper in faith with God, deeper in our walk with God, rather than the, our walk with ourselves, rather than blowing past that three mile an hour speed, blowing past the Jesus who is walking at the speed of love. This happens, uh, it, it's just built into our natural humanity that we have the propensity to either like see the holy and go for it or just completely choose to just, no, that's not for me. And the, the crown example of this, and I love that the scripture keeps this in here, is at the very end of the, the gospel story, Jesus has died and rose again. At the very end of it, he's about to ascend, which is a whole you know, funky thing in itself. He's about to like swoop up into the clouds. Uh, but people are standing, and there's a multitude of people, and they're standing, and they're seeing this man face-to-face -face that they saw on a cross just a few days before, that they literally saw get murdered, that they saw pulled off, that they saw got stabbed in the side, all that stuff. Now that same man is standing in front of them, flesh and blood, completely living, saying things like, go out into all nations and make disciples of me. And the scripture includes this, and I think it's so telling, because it's just it's who we are. It's who we are as humans. It says, and some still didn't believe. Some still doubted. Can you imagine that? You're staring this dude in the face, and some still were like, hmm, it's not for me. But that's just built into our natural propensity. That's, that's human nature. We can look the divine in the face and say, no, not for me. And what it is, it really, it becomes a choice. It becomes something that you can do, and we have to be kind of pushed into that, and we have to learn how to choose that moment right after that. After, after they uh, say some still about it, they, they walked away. The doubters kind of like left. But then when we pick up in the book of Acts, which is right after that, and it tells the story of like the original church and everything, we find them and Jesus ascends and it says that like a group of them were just sitting there like staring up at the sky and angels literally had to come and say like, guys, he's not coming back right now. You need to get to work. And they just, they're standing there looking up like, oh man, you might believe completely. You might have seen that miracle. You might have seen that holiness but you miss the part where he's like, now I want you to walk through the door. Now I want you to walk through this threshold, through this, this uncomfortable part of, I was here leading you that whole time. I'm still with you, but now you've got to kind of take the ball and run with it. Now it's up to you. And all that has to do with this idea of doorways and thresholds, and especially doorways. I got super nerdy about doorways uh, this week, but we, when we look at the story of Genesis, uh, we see that uh, there's a doorway in this story. There's a doorway in that fall. There's a doorway in, in everything. Um, and basically, it looks like this. If you see the leaving the garden story, we have the, the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, right? Let's look at the, some of the symbols in this. So you've got this tree that God says you can eat anything else. And it's a tree. Why is it a tree? But there, there's a tree, and you can eat anything else in here, but just don't go to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, a very literal reading of this text would, would make you kind of go like, okay, well, there's one tree that obviously has some fruit, maybe it's an apple, in our kind of common text, it's an apple, that we can't eat, but everything else is fine. Why did they go and eat that fruit? Now, 
I want to be really clear here. That tree is not called the tree of sin. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's knowledge. It's certainty. And so when they go and they pluck that fruit, there's this snake character, right? And so often we feel like, that's the devil! Um, and it might be. It could be. But in all the other myths and all of the other religions of that time, in, in almost every Genesis story for every single religion, there is a serpent involved. Um, and in ours, the serpent just so happens to be the bad guy. But in all honesty, the serpent is involved in that creation story because the serpent is the only animal that sheds its skin. In other ones, it's, it's a symbol of an umbilical cord that connects us to the source. So this is a symbol of something that sheds its skin and something that is unplugged from the source, is plugged into the source, and it's the one saying, you should go and eat of this because you'll be like God. And the tragedy is there, that, yeah, we did eat that, and then sin comes into the world, and we deal with all of this. But we have to understand that the whole biblical narrative, we were always supposed to. If we believe that God is sovereign, we believe that God has a plan. We were always supposed to leave that garden. Even in our own lives, you can't stay in the garden. You can't live at home at like 45, 55. Sorry, anybody who's in there. But you can't, you can't do that. To stay in the garden is to stay in your mother's basement. <laughs> It's to say, I'm just, I'm going to stay where it's safe. I'm going to stay where it's good. But here's the beautiful part of this, this part of the fall. It's a God that does not give up on them. This is the, um, the story in, in Genesis. Do we have that slide? There? Yeah. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, the next one, please. Perfect. Uh, this is right after they've eaten the fruit. They're going to have to go. It says, the man named his wife Eve because she is the mother of everyone who lives. The Lord God made the man and his wife leather clothes and dress them. And the Lord God said, the human being has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now so he doesn't stretch out his hand uh, and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever, the Lord God sent him out of the garden to farm the fertile land from which he was taken. So in this, we usually view this as a big angry God kicking them out of the garden. But if we really read this carefully, there's a lot of care. God understands, oh boy, it's going to be rough for you guys from now on. And so what does he do? The very first act, he clothes them. And that's a really big deal because before this, the, the scripture says Adam and Eve were naked and they were unashamed. Unashamed. The very first reference of shame in the Bible is unashamed. And then when they eat the fruit and they realize that they're naked, shame comes into the world. And the only way to get rid of that shame was to hide that nakedness. And so it's not Adam and Eve. It's not the fig leaves. God's going, that's not going to cut it. So he actually gives them clothes as a way to say, I know you're going to feel all of this shame. But here, here's something that will at least keep you from just having to live in that constant shame. And then he doesn't send Adam to some desert or some wilderness or some crazy unfertile land. He actually sends him to a place where he can make his life. So this God, even though we've messed up and we've screwed up and we did the wrong thing, this is a story of a God that's actually still walking with them, clothing them, and keeping with them. You see, I think in church and in Christianity, we try awfully hard to create little gardens. We try awfully hard in these spaces to create picture-perfect realities of people that have it all together. And when we come here, we come here in our Sunday best, and we come here shiny, and it's a garden. But the truth is the true work of the church is not just to create a garden. It's to create a space in which we can clothe people as they exit our doors or they enter them. That we can send them to a fertile land. That we can care for them. 
You see, this is the first instance of God's immense care for us, and it's played out after we mess up, after we screw up. Adam and Eve had to walk through a door. They had to go into the unknown, and that's the path for all of us if we want to get something out of life. The old mystics uh, used to call this liminal space. Liminal space is so fun and nerdy. Uh, basically, there's another term for it called thin space. These are spaces in which it's hard to discern uh, where we're at because, because it looks like heaven is so close and, and earth is so near, and we're in this tense spot. You know what this is. If you've ever gotten woken up by something in the middle of the night and you can't sleep because it's just stressing you out forever, this is that door, that liminal space, that space where we have to deal with this tension of, I'm, I'm in the middle of something. I'm not here in the beginning. I'm not in this job. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling the tension here, and I know that I need to go on to something else. That liminal space, that, that doorway, that threshold, that moving into a greater reality is all around Scripture, all around. And we have an entire tradition that, that literally tells us, you're supposed to walk through that door. You're supposed to engage that liminal space. You're actually supposed to stick in that tension for maybe longer than it's, it's comfortable because you'll actually learn. You'll actually, actually learn something new if you can actually learn to hold that tension and stay in that space. That's the whole point. And yet most of us won't walk through the door or won't go through the threshold because we don't know what's on the other side. It's this incredible cloud of terror of the unknown. Like, if we don't know exactly what's on the other side, we're afraid to jump there. But that's not the story of Scripture. That's not the story of God. We have this amazing guy in Scripture called Abraham, and Abraham uh, is, is key because he's the very beginning of the nation of Israel. He's the very beginning of this story of humanity. Adam and Eve may be the symbolic story of humanity, but Abraham's the first guy we get who's living a real life. He's living in this reality. And here's the thing. We don't have an origin story of Abraham. In fact, we don't have a story of how he grew up. We don't have a story of his, his midlife. We come to Abraham at age 70-something. We come to him way past the beginning of his story. And the only reason we come to him there is because God simply says, Abraham, take all that you have and go. I'm calling you to a new land. And that's unheard of. That's crazy talk. That's like you hearing something right now and just going like, okay, God wants me to pick up and move to Florida. I don't like Florida. I'm not going to Florida. That, that, that's the idea here. It's this call into the great unknown. And Abraham says yes. Says yes to this God. And we think right off the bat, but you have to remember there's like 75 plus years here of maybe him saying no. And all history remembers him for, all we read about him is from the moment that he chose to say yes and walk through that door. That's when he becomes interesting. That's when we can learn from him. That's when he becomes something is when he actually engages and steps through that door. And we have people like Moses, who it starts off small. We come to Moses, and the first interesting thing about Moses is, well, we have a whole origin story there, but where the real story of Moses begins is this burning bush, a bush that is not this big, magnificent pillar of fire, but just a tiny little shrub on fire that Moses chooses to engage with. And when God says, come, Moses, take off your shoes, step for this is holy ground, there's a choice to be made there. Moses is hearing a voice out of a bush. He could really just turn and run away. Instead, he decides to take his shoes off. He walks through that doorway and in that threshold. And look at the story of Moses. He starts small like that, so he begins to pay attention to the small stuff, to the little stuff. And then all of a sudden, 
He's faithful enough to go through plagues, and it culminates with he's faithful enough to literally look at a sea and trust that God can split that wide open so that people can walk through. Because once we start walking through these threshold moments, through these doorways, just in the smallest little ways, just tiny little steps of faith, the more that that grows and grows and grows, we get to the point where we actually think we could just stick a stick in the ground and God can move an entire sea. It's about being a good student. We have to start small. There's this other story, uh, and it's called The Rich Young Ruler. We have that um, on the screen here. I can't, there we go. Uh, in the Common English Bible, which I highly uh, recommend, um, this is called A Rich Man's Question. Uh, you normally call it um, A Rich Young Ruler, but it says, as Jesus continued down the road, remember this is Jesus on his own way, on his own path, uh, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to obtain eternal life? And Jesus replied, why do you call me good? So right from the beginning here, we have a very wealthy man running. There's two really important things historically here, and we'll get a little nerdy. Uh, if you are in an honor-shame-based society, which is what they were, the honorable man walks as slowly as possible. In fact, if you ever go and see the ruins of the temple, you'll see that the steps are mismatched, and it looks like a hodgepodge. Like, how could you ever climb up that? And the whole intention behind that was that you would have to walk up them slowly. So... A honored, an honored man would have gone slowly. This man chooses to run right to Jesus with all this fervor, all this intention, just shedding all that honor, embracing the shame, and he's going to ask him, he's going to roll up, and he's going to ask him what he needs. And Jesus replies right at the beginning, kind of shutting him down. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except the one uh, God. You know the commandments. Don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony. Don't cheat. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he responded, I've kept all of these things since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him carefully and loved him. And he said, you are lacking one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor. And then, the, then you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But the man was dismayed at the statement and went away saddened because he had many possessions. Looking around, Jesus said to his disciples, it will be very hard for the wealthy to enter God's kingdom. His words startled the disciples. So Jesus told them again, children, it's difficult to enter God's kingdom. It's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. Now, in all of the Gospels, this is the only instance that someone says no to being a disciple or gets rejected for being a disciple. When Jesus rolls up to those fishermen and says, hey, come follow me, they just drop their nets and they go. These are people that are willing to shift their identity but for this man, his identity was wrapped up in his possessions and what he had and what he'd already obtained and what he'd already inherited, and he could not separate that. He didn't have the ability to quickly pivot and just say, like, I'm not defined by the things that I own or the career that I have. I'm defined by this man who's asking me to come and follow him. The saddest part about this story is that the only reason we know of this rich young ruler, the only reason he's marked in history, unlike Abraham, is because he couldn't do it. It's because he said no to the miracle, to the threshold moment. And he just went on living his life. And he had so much intention at the beginning. He's running up. He wants to know. He really, really wants this, but he just can't step through the doorway to engage it. He just can't do it. I, uh, this week, um, I got a phone call uh, from Will Bradberg, who goes here normally. Um, and, and Will called me and he said, hey, I have really good news. Uh, can you uh, go to lunch? 
And I was like, I don't really have time for lunch. Can we do coffee like after? And he's like, yeah, let's, let's go get coffee. So I, I go get coffee and, uh, with Will. And I go, uh, and he said, hey, I have this really, this really amazing opportunity for you. We have uh, this slot in the spiritual formation class. It normally costs a few thousand dollars. Uh, but someone had to drop out at the last minute, um, and, and they just wanted to give it to someone who could use it and who could actually do it. And basically, it's, it's training to become a spiritual director. Um, and... And at first, I was like, okay, well, I'm a little skeptical. How much time is this going to take? He's like, it's not, it's not a lot of time. You know, it's, it's just there is some, like, initial time in the beginning, but you'll do it. So I, I, I was like, yeah, I'm game. I'm saying yes to the holy. I'm walking through the doorway. So I go, uh, and it's at Bel Air, and it's in a classroom, and there's 20 students there. Um, and I've been a new kid uh, way too many times in my life. I moved seven times before I turned 14. I went to four different high schools. So I get this instant anxiety, and, like, I can, I can label people so, so good. Like, and it all comes from the fact that I was homeschooled until I was in second grade, but I watched a lot of 80s and 90s rom-com teen movies, and so I really fully still believe in those stereotypes. I think there's, like, a cool kid, a bully, all that kind of stuff. So I'm looking around. I'm like, that guy's got to be the bully. She's the cool kid. Like, all this kind of I'm sitting down, and all this is going through my head. I'm super nervous, and I, I can't figure out why I'm so anxious and nervous. And so I'm beginning, I'm beginning to get the sense that I've made a mistake. I shouldn't have done this. This is too much. Uh, it's too much on my time. It's too much everything. I, I knew I had to be there from 12 to 5 that day. And I was like, I don't know. How am I going to get my sermons done? All that kind of stuff. And then I looked at the schedule. And the schedule every other day for that week was from 9 to 5. And I went, now I really can't do this. And I start looking around, and it's all people that are, like, mostly of the retired age. And I'm like, I'm taking a – like, these people have the time because they are retired. I'm 30 years old. But anyway, I'm, I'm in there, and I choose, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit a little bit, and I'm going to see what this is about. But I think at the end of this, I'm just going to have to go to Care, who's, who's leading the, uh, the class, and just say, I can't. There's no way I can, I can, like, put this in my schedule. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm so sorry. I hope someone else can come in there. I had this whole speech planned. Um, and then as soon as I'm in there, uh, she hands out this, uh, this handout, uh, and it's about a door. And I had already kind of planned on what I was going to speak loosely this week, and I was like, well, I can use this for my sermon. I'll stick around. So there's a door, uh, and then she talks about the idea that in Celtic spirituality, and then I go, Celtic spirituality? I've been hunting for this stuff all my life. Like, I, I've been looking. I have to hunt. I have a series of books you can only buy in the UK, and I figured out how to get them used on Amazon. They took like two months to get to me, and they were all the authors that they're talking about now. And it was sort of like I walked in there and realized, like, someone has stolen my record collection. Like, I, I felt like I'm going through it, and I'm like, all of this is, yes, yes, J. Philip Newell, Richard Rohr. Um, that was the other thing. The very first thing out of her mouth is, here's a quote from Richard Rohr. And I was like, oh, dang, I'm in. So then we're moving forward, uh, and she, she tells this story about uh, in Celtic spirituality, um, if you were going to enter a monastery uh, or an abbot, uh, there would be a guy named a porter, a porter, who would stand in the doorway, and what he would do symbolically is he would stand uh, one foot out of the door into the outside and one foot inside the door, and as people would come in the door, he would take their possessions he would take their, their burdens, the stuff that they were carrying with them, and he would take those and he would say, thank God you're here in this place, and God is thankful you're here too. And then they would enter, and they would enter into silence, they'd enter into whatever meditation they were there to do. But the porter takes off the possession. And so right after that, Kara says, this is a doorway. This moment where you're all here, this is a threshold moment, this is a doorway. And when you walk through it, you need to understand that you're not walking through it alone. That there's a porter there, and for us, that porter is this Jesus Christ who can take all of your baggage, all of your worry, and just exclaim, thank God you're here, and God is thankful for you in this place. All the worries, all the anxiety, all the work you have piling up, 
God can take that and hold that for you in this place. And I'm kidding you not, I'm sitting there and tears are just streaming down my face and I'm like, oh, screw it, I'll do it. <laughs> I'll stay. But over the course of that week, we got to hear everybody's story. Everybody told a 10-minute story and I just kept on getting more and more moved and more and more moved and more and more emotional. I couldn't figure out what was going on and I just realized that I had stepped through a doorway, that I had said yes to something that was incredibly valued in my life. And I'm so thankful to be here. Part of it was we got to go to the Getty, and we had to do five hours of silence at the Getty. And someone like me who loves to talk and who has extreme ADD, that was going to be the biggest task of the entire week. So we get to the Getty, uh, and we go and we look at a painting, and we, we go through it. We all say what we want to do. It was one of the whitest exercises I've ever done. Um, but we, we do that, and then they all left, and so we all spread out. And they're like, just go find one, one painting, one piece of art. Uh, that moves you, and I just sit in front of it for like four hours. And I was like, that sounds terrible. So I went to the cafe, and I got a beer. So I went to the cafe, <laughs> and I sat down, um, and I'm like, ah, oh, man, I can't, you know, I, I can't just sit. I got, I'll, yeah, I'll, get, I'll do something. Uh, what should I do? And so I was actually really fascinated with this guy, Getty, and why a human being would want to leave behind so much. Like, that center is enormous. It's like sitting in the grandest palace you've ever seen, and he just sort of left that. So I wanted to figure that out, so I go, there's an intro video, and I was like, movie time, cool. And I went into the movie, and it was supposed to be an intro to this thing, and it didn't say anything about Getty. It just said something about the center. Uh, before that, I'd walked around and tried to look at paintings, and nothing was really moving me, it wasn't happening. Um, so they're just talking about the center and how the center got there. And I'm like, well, this isn't what I came here for. I don't know what I'm going to do today. And uh, at the very end of the movie, uh, it, it mentions uh, this, this man, and they say, and the gardens are designed by California artist Robert Irwin. Now, if you've been here for a while, you've heard me talk at length about this Robert Irwin fellow. He is one of my favorite artists, and I just nerd out on everything that he says. He has an autobiography, or a biography, that's a collection of conversations, and he's this artist that was just off the wall brilliant, or is, he's, he's 86 years old now. Uh, but the, the name of the biography is called Seeing is Forgetting the Name of That Which One Sees. I mean, that right there, and it's enough. You could just, you could go for days on how meaningful that is. Uh, but you read through it, and you just see story after story of this crazy artist living this crazy life, uh, the best of which is he was invited uh, to this, uh, this school in San Francisco. It was going to give him an honorary degree. He hates art schools. He hates degrees, so he said no. Uh, and then the day of, he decided, ah, maybe I'll give that a shot. He drives his convertible from L.A. to San Francisco, comes and tells them an hour before the ceremony that he's going to go and he's going to be the speaker. So they bump the speaker that was supposed to be there before. Robert Irwin takes the stage, and he looks out at everyone, and he looks at the students in the eyes, and he says, I wasn't going to come here today. But I decided I was going to come because I needed to tell you this. The wonder is still there. And then he walked off the stage. <laughs> no lie, this guy's a real human being. He walked off the stage. And so Robert Irwin flashes on that screen, and I hear those words, the wonder is still there. And I begin to go, oh my gosh, that's it. That's what I'm here for. I'm here to pay attention. I'm here to intentionally slow down. So I go down to those gardens, and I, I Google it, and it turns out that those gardens are literally designed so that you will get lost. There's a, there's a path from the front to the bottom where the guards and the circles are. And if you've ever been there, you'll know it zigzags through uh, the garden so that you cannot make a straight line. You have to intentionally go zigzag through the garden and to the bottom. And so I'm, I'm there, and, and I wanted to go in, but it's pouring down rain this week, and so they've closed the garden. So I'm, I'm there in the rain just staring at those gardens, going like, wow, 
God, you really, you taught me something here. I'm supposed to be paying attention to the wonder that is around everywhere. And I, I love doing that stuff, but in all honesty, this year beat me down, and I've, I've just not been engaged with that in my life. And so I was like, man, okay, well, God, I'm going to start saying yes to the holy. I'm going to start saying yes to every opportunity that you put in front of me. I'm going to be paying attention. So then I went back down to the cafe, and I ordered another beer. <laughs> I sat down. And I began journaling, and I began uh, just, just explaining to myself, I wanted to look back and, and, and read this holy experience that I had about this call to start paying attention and engaging with wonder. Uh, and then I see two men enter the door of the cafe, uh, one of which I recognize instantly, and the other one just looks like this rock star uh, guy. Uh, and it turns out this, this man that I recognize instantly, uh, I don't want to get too specific, we'll call him Sam, because that's his real name, um, but Sam, uh, came through the door, and he was, he's a record producer. And when I was a kid, uh, a teenager, like around 15 or 16, um, he was actually a record producer that wounded me pretty deeply. I don't know if any of you guys have like, been around musicians or the music industry, but it's a rough go. And they are not subtle. They are, not, like, they are just very blunt. Um, and I had a session with him because we were looking at uh, different producers and stuff, and, um, and he was the partner of the producer that I was working with. And so I go into the session, and this guy and I have just never really hit it off. I, I don't know what it was. It's just those people that, like, you can see. My dog will do that with particular dogs. He'll just look at one dog and decide, I don't like that dog at all, and I'll start barking. This is kind of that same energy and vibe. So we're in there, and I'm 16. I've got a full head of Moppy Glory's hair, which I did not steward well. Uh, and I'm in there, and, and we start playing songs, and we start doing stuff. And I, I, I go near my guitar, and I show them something I've done. Uh, and he just, he just kind of looks at me. He looks at the other producer, and he's like, this guy's not going to do it. It's not, he's not got it. Like, we shouldn't waste our time. Um, honestly, Josh, it'd be better if you could just, you just go. Uh, and I was like, cool. Uh, so I packed up my guitar, and I left. But the thing is, I'm, I'm 16. I didn't have a car. I had to wait for my mom to come pick me up. It's one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. I was like, could I just stick in the lobby because my mom's coming? <laughs> They're like, yeah, you can stick in the lobby because your mom's coming, you nerd. Anyway, uh, I go into the lobby, uh, and there's a piano in there, uh, and there's this kid. It's, this, it's Sam's son, um, and he's... He's playing on the piano, uh, and he's trying. He's like, I'm, I'm writing a song. And I was like, that's great. Uh, I'm, my heart is completely broken and shattered on the floor. And, and so I'm in there, but it's lingering. My mom's taking a long time to get there. And so I, I go up to the piano, and I was like, hey, could I help you write a song? And he said, yeah, please. And his eyes just like light up. Do you remember this is a kid that like his dad just like threw him into the lobby to go play on the piano for like hours while he's in this session. So he's just he's like, stoked. Like, I can do so. This is fun. And so we, we, we stick together, and we start writing a song, and it, it turns out my mom takes like two hours to get there, and so we're, we're just hanging out. I realize like I'm babysitting this kid. I should be getting paid for this, but I, I'm playing these songs. It's just a blast. I just remember it's like such a warm end to such an awful moment. Um, and so that's the story of Sam, and Sam walks through, uh, and I'm sitting here journaling about how I'm supposed to be paying attention to holy moments, looking out to a garden that's supposed to be designed to bring you into the present, and I'm looking at this man, and I go, oh, shoot. God, is this one of those moments I'm supposed to like go up and engage with? Because I really don't want to do that. Uh, but I was like, I've, yeah, I've promised myself, so you know what? I'm going to journal this page, and then I'm going to stand. They, they sit, no lie, two tables over from me. And I can just tell, I've made like kind of pseudo-icon, and I can tell he does not recognize me at all. I've lost the moppy hair. So anyway, he's, he's looking at me, uh, and he doesn't really know, and so I, but they're sitting like one table away. 
And so I'm journaling, and I'm just, I'm hyper-focused on the fact that he's over there, and I'm here, and I'm, I'm supposed to be engaging with these holy moments, and oh, shoot, I'm going to have to do this. So I'm pumping myself up, and I'm writing down, like, you will go to that table, and you will talk to that man. Uh, and I get to the end of the page, and they're still there. And I'm like, it, it, I should probably do one more page of journaling. So I turn it around, and I, I start writing again, uh, and I get to the bottom, and they're still there, and I go, fine. I'll, go, I'll walk up, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk. What I was going to say, I have no idea. But I was just like, okay, I'm supposed to engage with these holy moments. So I, I put up my notebook, my laptop's on the table. I put it into my backpack. I turn around, and there are these two gentlemen standing right there. And, uh, and, and I hear, uh, just out of the corner as I'm moving, not Sam's voice, uh, but the voice of the rock star-looking dude. And he just says, Josh. And I look up, and I'm befuddled. Like, he's standing there, and his dad is standing behind him. Or that's not let's give away the whole story. Anyway, uh, and Sam is standing behind him, and he just goes, Josh, I don't know if you remember. This is Jonathan. This is my son. Uh, and I did not remember Jonathan's name. I didn't know who he was. But he just said, Josh. And he said, I had so much fun that day writing that song with you. I just wanted to thank you for that. And Sam just kind of stood there cowering in the background like, that wasn't the same for me that day. <laughs> and I was kind of like, no, it wasn't. I'm getting back at you right now. Um, but in that moment, something holy happened. And we exchanged little pleasantries and small talks, and we both walked away. And I walked away from that moment going, oh, my gosh, what do we do with this? You see, if we can live lives where we are genuinely open to what God is doing around us and understanding that we're not bringing God in that moment, but God is fully at work before we get there, but if we can just live lives of paying attention and marking and naming moments, then we can live rich, extremely powerful lives. Let's pray together. God, I'm, I'm so grateful for, for these threshold moments, for these doorways that we can choose to walk through, and we recognize that we're not walking through them alone, but that you are there to take our bags and to say, thank God you're here. And God is thankful that you're here. I'm thankful for this community. I'm thankful for this church. I love these people, God. Thank you for bringing them um, into my lives and into each other's lives. And I just pray over our week to come. Uh, Lord, we pause and we take special uh, remembrance on what this weekend is truly for and the life that was given uh, for greater equality in this country um, and how beautiful that is. And so I, I pray that as tomorrow we... Some of us are able to enjoy a day off. I, I pray that we would be focused on the fact that there's even more work to be done, uh, that you are constantly making things new. Amen.